Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality, I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you will emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. Because anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. Let's get into it. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. New listeners, hello. Returning listeners, hello. Welcome back again. This is going to be episode two of our Trauma Worlds series. So if you haven't yet listened to episode one, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that because this episode won't make much sense without the context of the previous episode. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, and I assume anyone who's left at this point has already listened to episode one, let's just do a little quick recap of what we covered in our first episode. We are exploring the work of Marion Woodman through this beautiful lecture, which has been nicely memorialized in this paper by Daniela FCF, and it's called Trauma Worlds and the Wisdom of Marion Woodman. And in our first episode, we talked about what is a trauma world, and it's essentially this way that we see the world when we've grown up with trauma, emotional neglect, different types of developmental trauma, and how it almost creates this different reality that we live in. 
Whereas someone who doesn't have this kind of trauma and emotional baggage, they're seeing the same world, but in a safer and more secure way that we just can't become familiar with. And where we left off was this statement by Daniela. She said, what constitutes a trauma world varies from person to person, depending on our individual experiences and unique disposition. However, three dynamics form the hub of all trauma worlds. And the last part of our episode was exploring and beginning to cover these three different connecting dynamics. Because as we discovered on the first episode, all of us are different. We see the world, we perceive things in different ways. Two people living in the same house, experiencing the exact same trauma, neglect, what have you, can respond to that very same trauma in very different ways. But there are some shared dynamics that traumatized people can all relate to. In the last part of the episode, we talked about these three different things that Daniela brings up. She brings up these three dynamics, hypervigilance, disconnection, and shame. And we spent a heavy amount of time in the last episode covering hypervigilance. And when we left off, I said in this episode, we'd pick up where we left off and begin diving into disconnection and shame. OG listeners that have been listening for a while will know that back in my podcast feed, and if you haven't already listened to it yet, you can scroll back. I did an eight part series on toxic shame that's available for you to binge now, because if you are someone who's diving into a recovery journey, if you don't know about toxic shame, get familiar with it and go back and listen to that eight part episode series that I did. It'll take you a while to get through it, but it is well worth the listen. And by far, I would say aside from my mother and father wound episodes, that series got the most amount of replies, responses, and reactions. And so I won't be diving too deep into the idea of shame as I did on hypervigilance because I feel like eight episodes of shame, I've already covered it. But let's talk about disconnection How Daniela describes disconnection, and I teased you with this on the last episode, she describes it as this. When we are experiencing disconnection as it relates to trauma worlds, parts of ourselves become exiled. We are distanced from our emotions, our bodies, and aspects of our personalities. Let's talk a little bit about disconnection. The idea of having different parts of ourselves can be a little confusing if you are not already familiar with Jungian psychology, depth psychology, or some of the newer therapeutic approaches. In depth psychology, particularly in Jungian and psychodynamic approaches, the concept of parts refers to various aspects of the self or psyche. These parts aren't necessarily distinct personalities. That can become very confusing and I don't want you to think that. But rather they are facets of the individual's identity, emotions, and personality. So for example, there might be a vulnerable inner child part. We're all familiar with the inner child, right? A critical inner voice or even repressed aspects of our identity that haven't been integrated into conscious awareness. Each part represents a different dimension of our inner world. 
you can relate to this. If you lose your shit on someone that you love or have just some kind of explosion, maybe after you've been holding things, holding things, holding things, and then you just lose it at someone who doesn't deserve it. And you almost think, what came over me? That's a part of yourself that's lying in the subconscious. Several therapeutic approaches emphasize working with these different parts of the self. For example, internal family systems or shortened IFS therapy was developed by Richard C. Schwartz, and this is one of those kinds of models. Internal family systems posits that individuals have multiple parts within them, each with its own perspective, emotions, and role. Virginia Satir, a family therapist, one of my favorites, also long before the work of Richard Schwartz, explored the idea of parts in her work emphasizing the importance of integrating different aspects of the self to achieve personal growth and improved relationships. I even in one episode, and I'm forgetting which one at this point, we've dived into the work of Virginia Satir before and looking at all of our different parts of ourselves. There's this beautiful meditation that she has where she guides people through almost looking at their different parts as though you're sitting in the audience and you're watching all of these different parts of yourself play out on the stage. And the idea is, is that you disidentify from these parts. You obviously know that they're part of you, but you also realize that you are in the audience watching this all play out. You are the higher awareness. But the problem is, is that when we're unconscious, We're letting these different parts rule the show. They're important. They deserve to have a voice, but we need to be the director of the play. So when certain parts of the self become exiled parts, like Daniela says here, it means that these aspects are pushed away from conscious awareness due to various reasons like trauma, shame, or societal expectations. And the ramifications of having exiled parts can be profound, to say the least. Individuals with exiled parts might experience a sense of inner emptiness, disconnection from authentic emotions, and a really fragmented sense of self. And this can manifest in difficulties in forming meaningful relationships, a lack of self-understanding, and challenges in navigating life's inherent complexities. Trauma plays a significant role in the exile of parts, When individuals undergo traumatic experiences, especially in childhood, they might dissociate from certain emotions or aspects of themselves as a coping mechanism. The trauma might lead to the fragmentation of the self as a way to survive overwhelming experiences. Now, this exiling of parts can be protective, but over time, it becomes maladaptive because it hinders authentic self-expression and integration. So an example of this, right? If you grew up and you knew that it wasn't okay to be angry because if you showed your anger at the injustice of your dysfunctional family environment, you faced consequences for that. And you learned really quickly that anger is bad or your parents are allowed to express anger or your caregivers are, but it's not okay for you to. And so maybe you grow up and you get a job or you experience situations where your boundaries are crossed and people are treating you in an unjust manner and you need to speak your truth and you feel that boiling anger, but you shove it down. In childhood, it was protective 
for you to shut this angry part off because you learned that you would face consequences. Maybe you're in a healthy relationship now and your partner would be very open to knowing when you're angry, but you're scared because when you grew up, you only witnessed being abandoned or yelled at when you showed your anger. And so this is how things become maladaptive as we get older. These things that we did as children to protect ourselves, and it's very fucking good that we did this because God knows what would have happened to us. We were trying to protect ourselves. They become the very things that keep us from connection now in the present. In the context of trauma, these different exiled parts might represent adaptive responses to specific threats. And these adaptive responses might persist even when the threat is no longer present. Therapeutic approaches that involve parts work like internal family systems aim to facilitate reintegration of these exiled parts. And the idea here is that when we do this, it fosters healing and a more integrated sense of self. Recognizing, acknowledging, and working with our exiled parts is a crucial aspect of trauma recovery and the journey toward wholeness as it relates to depth psychology. I think it's really important when we're talking about these exiled split off parts of our personality to bring up the famous symptom of quote-unquote borderline personality disorder, but in my opinion, our entire society is showing this symptom, and that is that of splitting or dichotomous slash black and white thinking. The exiling of these different parts of ourselves and the phenomenon of splitting are really closely connected. Both of them reflect ways that we cope with and adapt to challenging experiences, especially especially those involving trauma. Splitting or black and white thinking, thinking everything is either all good or all bad, is a defense mechanism that involves categorizing experiences, people, or aspects of ourselves into extreme polarized categories, which is usually good or bad, all or nothing. This defense mechanism often arises from the need to manage overwhelming emotions and maintain a sense of control in the face of distress. And this is very, very important to discuss when we're talking about trauma worlds, because when we're thinking of things as all good or all bad, there's nothing on this world that's all good or all bad. It's always a mix of things in between. For example, even someone who is an absolute monster, they've done good things in their life too. They've not just been all bad and there's a reason that they grew up the way that they are and it's just easier to look at life. It's a very childlike, immature way of looking at the world when we split it in this way. When we split, right, we are going to be swinging between extreme emotional states without a nuanced understanding of the complex emotions that we're experiencing. It has a devastating effect on our relationships. Because when you are approaching the world where everything either has to be all good or all bad, we can end up putting people that we're in relationships with or even creators that we follow or people that we admire on this massive pedestal. So the moment that they don't adhere to this all perfect thing, we are splitting on them and they are automatically all bad. I mean, just look at how this is playing out in the cultural milieu right now. Also, Exiling parts and splitting contributes to a fragmented sense of identity. 
individuals would struggle with integrating different aspects of themselves, leading to internal conflicts and a lack of social cohesion. I don't even need to talk in depth about the massive confusion and focus that is playing out when it comes to the idea of identity and identifying with different labels right now. But I really believe this has a connection with trauma worlds and splitting and our focus on wanting to shove ourselves into an extreme box and have everything make perfect sense. We're not comfortable with things being messy. We're not comfortable with the idea of our identity developing over time. We want to figure out what's going on right now. What's our diagnosis right now? What's wrong with me? Am I permanently disordered? Who am I? What's my identity? I need a label on it right now. When these things are absolutely something that change and develop and transform over time. But when we're stuck in trauma worlds, which is very common right now, we're not comfortable with the weight. We're not comfortable with the messiness. So by now, you have an understanding, a deep understanding of what it means when Daniela talks about these dynamics of trauma worlds and how disconnection plays a huge part. Now you understand how disconnection means parts of ourselves have been exiled and we're distanced from our emotions, our bodies, and aspects of our personality. This state of being has a massive impact on how we act in the world, the actions we take, which then manifests our reality, not in a metaphysical way, in a very concrete way. So Daniela goes on to write that the last dynamic, we talked about hypervigilance, disconnection, and then she writes shame. How she articulates shame is our identity becomes interwoven with a visceral feeling of being fundamentally inadequate and unworthy of relationships. And as I already described, if you want to know all about the impact toxic shame has, go back and listen to that eight-part series on toxic shame. You don't necessarily have to do it right now. This series can be standalone, but if you want to dive into the intricacies of that, I've literally talked about it for like 13 hours. So go and dive there. But really, shame soaks us in this feeling that we're not worthy. And by far, the vast amount of emails, comments, all the reactions I see is that all of us are soaked in toxic shame. We really believe that there is something fundamentally wrong, dirty, bad about us, and that somehow somebody's going to find out who we really are, which is dirty, gross, shameful, bad, and they're going to leave us. But this is just an illusion of the trauma world. So let's continue on with Daniela's lecture here. She writes, I will return to each dynamic later. And by that, she means hypervigilance, disconnection, and shame. But for now, I want to emphasize that fear, disconnection, and shame distort both inner and outer realities. They distort inner reality by warping our relationship with ourselves. And they distort outer reality by warping our relationships with other people and the world at large. Think about that. When we are swimming and our entire life revolves around hypervigilance, disconnection, shame, that paranoid golem energy, the belief that we are just trash human beings, not only are you soaking in this internally, the way that you're acting with the world, with those beliefs, impacts 
the way that your reality shapes out on the outside too. So it is all encompassing. That's why it can feel so overwhelming and real. That's the thing. It is your reality. That's how it really feels. So she goes on to write, moreover, if we enter a trauma world during childhood, the resulting distortions become our normality and we have no awareness of what we're living. Then we have a little choice, but to behave in ways that create repetitive and self-perpetuating cycles of trauma, both in ourselves and others. There's no conscious decision to enter a trauma world. Rather, it is what human brains and bodies have evolved to do in the face of overwhelming pain or fear. What's more, a trauma world is not created in the relatively accessible cognitive systems of the brain. Rather, it's hidden in the embodied systems, muscles, hormones, nervous system, and brain structure that underlie our feelings as well as our ways of perceiving the world and engaging with it. And she cites Bessel van der Kolk here, the author of The Body Keeps the Score. And this is why so many people who might find themselves going to therapy, taking the medications, doing the prescriptive thing that Western systems ask you to do, and you're still suffering. It's because we're very cerebral here in the West. We want to treat the mind and we think everything is in the mind. Like CBT comes to mind, right? Is like, just fix the way that you're thinking. And I'm not reducing CBT to that. I'm not saying that there aren't helpful aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy because there are, but it misses a huge part. And when we leave the body out, we're missing the trick. So let's continue. The most visible experiences that leave us feeling that our survival is threatened are those that cause acute suffering and fear. For adults, that might mean experiencing war or a terrorist incident, being attacked or raped, surviving a natural catastrophe or serious car accident. Witnessing such events can have the same effect. Children will feel similarly threatened by overt violence, and because children can neither fight as effectively as adults, nor run as fast, events that will not bother an adult might be terrifying for a child. From an evolutionary perspective, our children's survival is as important as our own, and parents can be traumatized by losing their children. Conversely, children can be traumatized by losing parents. I want to take a break here because I feel like this is really important. Almost anyone can understand how surviving a terrorist attack or being in a war zone would be traumatic, but you'll find very many people who, if you talk about childhood trauma or if you talk about CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is when you maybe have like little T traumas as they call them over a period of time, they'll shrug them off and say, oh, why can't you just get over it? And that's the thing <laughs> is that when you're a child, you can't run away. You can't stand up for yourself. And you know that if you try, you're going to maybe get actually beaten back down or verbally beaten back down or get the cold shoulder, which feels like complete abandonment and rejection from your quote unquote tribe of your family. And even little things as a child can feel 
completely devastating, especially if that child is highly sensitive, as we talked about in episode one. And it can be really invalidating and scary when you open up about that stuff and the response that you get from the person you're confiding in is saying like, well, that's not a very big deal, right? Because they don't understand these dynamics that we're talking about now. She goes on to write, less obvious but equally damaging is the insidious and chronic pain and fear of growing up feeling unloved, unvalued, or inadequate. The consequences of what did not happen during childhood are hard to identify, but can be just as wounding as what did happen. Powerful, powerful statement there, and so very true. Sometimes we grow up feeling not exactly unloved or unwanted, but that we're never quite good enough. When family, peers, or society repeatedly sets goals that are beyond our capabilities, we have no choice but to fail. It doesn't matter if the unreachable goals are related to academic achievement, physical appearance, sporting success, or filling the gaps in our parents' inner lives. When we're repeatedly faced with inevitable failure, the resulting pain can propel us into a trauma world. Attachment theory has shown that trauma is triggered in infants and young children when parents or caregivers are unable to attune to them sensitively. At first glance, it's hard to see why this lack of sensitivity should cause trauma. However, looking at the lives of our human ancestors can help us understand what's happening. In the environments in which humans evolved, around 30% of children died before they were five years old. And under those conditions, having insensitive caregivers was a death sentence. Babies born in the West today have no way of knowing that their situation is different. Sometimes trauma comes to us across generations. When our parents and grandparents carried unresolved trauma, we inherit their fears and distorted perceptions and our trauma world is formed around their experiences. Research is revealing that it's not just pain and fear that constellate trauma. Rather, trauma is constellated when we experience pain and fear and there's nobody present to help us process these emotions. Again, an evolutionary perspective suggests why this might be the case. For our human ancestors, being part of a close-knit social network was crucial to survival. Children and adults lacking social support were likely to die. Consequently, we feel safe when we are accompanied, but at risk when we are alone. Suffering trauma without support heightens our fear and contributes to the sense that one's life is threatened. I think some important reflections can happen here before we move on to the next segment of Daniela's lecture. First, trauma is just going to happen. There is no bubble boy world that we can create for ourselves that suffering doesn't happen. And there are tons of traumas that we endure throughout our life. And that actually is part of how we grow and develop resiliency. But an important point that's being made here is when people are alone and they feel like they don't have anyone with them to go through this stuff and talk about it with and find solace and community, that's when it really starts becoming malignant and people aren't able to bounce back as effectively. We heal in community. We need people to be able to talk to and so many people don't have that. 
And that's how childhood trauma really plays out, in my opinion. There's going to be shit that happens. Nobody's going to be a perfect parent. I'm terrified to become a parent. But I do know that the most traumatic stuff for me was when my parents really just doubled down and refused to just come out and admit like, hey, that was my bad. I really lost my shit with you there. I need to do my own inner work. Don't worry. That's not about you. It's not your fault. I'm sorry for exploding at you. I promise I'll try to do better next time. I'm so sorry. Hug your child and let them go about their merry way. But the problem is, is that parents just don't do that sometimes. And that's how a lot of us felt very alone. And for me, growing up, I experienced that a lot. I remember being sent to my room for things and I would cry myself to sleep so much and I felt so deeply and profoundly alone in my suffering. And I felt like I had no one to go to, to talk to about these things that I was feeling. And that sense of aloneness was really, really painful. And maybe you can relate to that too. She also talks about this idea of generational trauma and how it can really play out across the generations. I'm not going to take the time to look into it now because I feel like that would be a whole separate episode, but I've read multiple examples of this. Like for example, those uh, children of children of children of children, or I don't even know if we've gotten that far generationally, but the ancestors of survivors of the Holocaust, for example, I read one time an example of the daughter of a father whose father was in a Nazi death camp. So think about this. This is like two generations removed. She really struggled with um, deep deep trauma, um, issues with like food and kind of like binging eating and all sorts of interesting things. And when she went into psychoanalysis, it kind of came out that she was still dealing this, this generational trauma from members of her family being in these Nazi death camps. It was still playing out and echoing throughout their family, even though this girl was Jewish. She came from a really wealthy family in New York. Her dad was very successful, but her dad hadn't addressed any of his trauma. And it was all from his dad being a victim of these death camps. And so therefore she was still facing the consequences. And this is the importance of us standing up and breaking the cycle, looking at this trauma head on and facing it and feeling it so that we don't pass this on to future generations. And you'll hear so many people say, well, just don't have kids. That's how you break the cycle. Well, yeah, that's one way, but it doesn't mean you have to not have a child if that's something that you want to do. You're just going to have to face your trauma. It doesn't mean you have to be a perfect parent, but you have to become a parent that exemplifies doing the inner work and owning up to your child when you do lose your shit or you get overwhelmed and you tell them that this isn't theirs to carry and that you're showing an example of how you deal with big emotions. You're owning them. You're saying like, I'm going to go feel my feelings. It's okay to have feelings. This is how we break the cycle because our children are going to suffer too. There's going to be more traumas. Look at the world we're living in, but we want to raise resilient cycle breakers. All right, now before we get into the next section, I am going to take a moment to shout out my sponsors of the podcast. The first one being Jung Platform. 
It's no secret, especially through listening to this episode, you know how much I love the work of Carl Jung and depth psychology. Jung Platform is an online platform that has tons of different courses that are led by some of the most prominent Jungian analysts today. These are not just any course that you're going to find on Instagram. These are courses from incredible people, including previous Back From The Borderline guest and one of the absolute juggernauts in the Jungian analysis field, Dr. James Hollis. I have taken multiple courses on Jung Platform, two of these being the Active Imagination course and the Jungian Tarot course by Dr. Ken James. I'm loving it and I loved it so much that I'm actually in the official Jungian Tarot Reading Certificate course that Ken James is offering. So I'm getting to learn from him live with a group of people and I will be certified by the end of this summer. So I'm really excited about that. I reached out to Young Platform after taking their courses and wanted to offer some kind of affiliate partnership because I couldn't think of a better marriage between my podcast and what they're doing. And thankfully they agreed. So now you can use my specific link as well as the code MOLLY10 to get 10% off your first course at Young Platform. And you can go ahead and access that by going to backfromtheborderline.com, clicking into my link tree and scrolling down, and you'll see the little picture of Carl Jung that will take you straight to that link where you can browse the different courses and see what's going on there. My other sponsor is Pure Spectrum CBD. They are an amazing company based out of Evergreen, Colorado. They use the highest quality products. CBD has been super effective for me, especially around the time of my period. And their nighttime CBN CBD tincture is chef's kiss. It really helps me fall asleep and stay asleep around the time of my period. A link to get a discount off your first order from Pure Spectrum is also in my link tree. So be sure to check that out and also Remember that everything that works for me might not work for you. I know there can be some contraindications with CBD if you're taking other medications. So just remember you're your own best advocate. Consult with your doctor if you feel like you need to do that. So shout out to those sponsors. Love them. Long-term listeners know I don't work with just anybody. It's very important to me that sponsors that I choose to work with are deeply aligned to the work that I'm doing and things that I actually use and actually get benefit from. So now I'm going to take a quick break. What you're about to hear are just some dynamically inserted ads that are placed there by my podcast host. I don't choose what they put in here. It's just like ads that you hear on YouTube. You can choose to skip over them or listen to them. Do you? But allowing these dynamically placed ads on my podcast allows me to keep making the podcast available for free. But if you'd like an ad-free experience, you can do that too. My premium subscribers on Patreon get full-length ad-free episodes always so if that sounds interesting to you you can go to patreon.com slash back from the borderline and join the premium submarine community but in the meantime check out these ads and we'll be right back here to continue our conversation on trauma worlds hold up 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So let's continue on. She writes, Marion Woodman's descriptions of how parents might fail to see their children's intrinsic value has freed many to see their lives with more clarity. So she's gone on here to quote Marion Woodman. And in episode one, we talked all about Marion Woodman and her early life and who she is. So if you listen to that episode, now we're really getting into some of her work. So you'll see why I love her so much. So the first is this quote from Marion Woodman. It could be that the child is a mistake, born amidst a certain amount of ambivalence. It may be that her parents wanted a boy, and so they can't appreciate their child as a girl, or vice versa. Alternatively, a child may be brought into the world to fill a gap in her parents' life. A woman may want a child to secure her place in the family. A man may desire a son to carry on the family name. A couple may hope that a child will save their marriage. When this happens, the child is unable to be herself. Her intrinsic value is unrecognized. Other parents look to their children to live their unlived lives, thereby negating the fact that children have their own lives to lead. Alternatively, a parent who needed to renounce his or her truth in order to survive will typically invalidate the truth of their child. Teachers can have the same effect. Additionally, Marion Woodman's exploration of the dark feminine has brought consciousness to the different types of harmful energy that children might face. First, Woodman shone a spotlight on what she calls the negative mother archetype, whose modus operandi is relentless criticism. So she shares another quote from Marion Woodman. The negative mother controls her child with unconscious power and judgment. Negative mother is the voice that rules in many households, whether it comes from mother or father. Her message is, if you love me, you will do as I say. Be who I want you to be. I know you better than you know yourself. I know what's best for you. The negative mother changes how we think and feel about ourselves, thereby distorting our lives. So let's take a pause here to unpack what we've heard so far from Danielle about the negative mother. I love how she also articulates that this is an archetype. And when we're talking about archetypes, this is a universal energy. And she talks about how men and women can display this negative mother energy. It's a universal energy. How many parents do you know that exert this type of energy, right? This 
if you love me, do what I say, or parents that are literally living vicariously through their children and women maybe getting pregnant because they think it will save their relationship or someone will stay with them because they had a baby. This does nothing but traumatize the result of these dynamics, which is an unsuspecting, innocent child. And this archetypal energy, this negative mother energy is playing out in the unconscious because it's not like these parents or this person, man or woman that's embodying this negative mother energy towards their child is thinking, haha, I'm going to fuck my kid up. Can't wait. That's why this stuff is messy. How many of you out there have this complicated feeling of like, I love my parents so much but they also fucked me up so bad and I hate them and I love them. That's what the word ambivalent means. It's these complicated feelings. That's why they say there's a fine line between love and hate. You know that your parents didn't mean to do any of this. And a lot of times they're just playing out the same trauma and unresolved shit that was thrown onto them by their parents. But that's why it's so important for us to become conscious of this stuff. So now she goes on to talk about another archetype. An even more damaging energy is one that Woodman came to identify as the archetypal death mother. The death mother energy feeds on humiliation and shame, powerlessness, and the fear of annihilation. Medusa of the Greek myths exemplifies the death mother archetype. Ultimately, the death mother carries the wish that we or some part of us did not exist. Woodman emphasized that basing the death mother energy not only changes what we think and feel about ourselves, but also changes the very cells of our body. And here's something that Marion Woodman wrote about this. The death mother energy is a deadening energy which permeates both psyche and body turning us to stone. And this is like the Medusa myth, right? When we look at Medusa, you turn to stone. She goes on to say, it stifles growth and imprints ourselves with profound fear and hopelessness. In time, our vitality drains away and we find ourselves yearning for the oblivion of death. Ultimately, our body may turn against itself as it does with cancer or autoimmune diseases. So it's here you can see how ahead of her time Marion Woodman was. She was talking about the mind-body connection. This quote from her really exemplifies that. So CF goes on to say, although Woodman sought the archetypal death mother as a psychological reality rather than a literal one, she recognized the importance of early developmental experiences. And here she shares another quote from Marion Woodman. If this child knew in the womb that it was not the gender the parents longed for, or there was no money for another child, or timing in the marriage was bad, or it barely escaped abortion, this child knows that it's not welcomed into life, not wanted. Is there anything worse for a helpless infant to experience in its bones? Now, this again shows how ahead of her time that she was. Because I've read so much now at this point about how when we are in utero, 
Babies are already reacting to the state of the psyche of the mother because a fetus and its mother are literally connected. There's no separation. And so therefore, if the mom is like incredibly stressed and traumatized, abused, having really, really stressful environment, the baby is going to sense and feel this in a way. So she goes on to write, the fact that infants are so frightened by feeling that they're not wanted is due in part to our evolutionary heritage. Most people believe that women evolved to love all their children instinctively and unconditionally. However, anthropologists have established that maternal love did not evolve to be unconditional. Rather, ancestral women needed to take account of several factors when deciding whether or not to nurture a particular child. When food was plentiful, when women had support and the baby was healthy, it made sense to commit to the child. When situations were less promising, it sometimes made sense for mothers to abandon their babies to die. For most of our deep history, being born to a woman who carried the death mother energy was genuinely life-threatening. This makes me think of a show that I just finished watching. It's a show called The Vikings. It's on Amazon Prime. I've talked about this so much to my premium subscribers. I loved this show. But a really good example of this was a baby was born to this couple. I don't want to give it away if anyone's watching the show. It's a pretty old show by now, but I don't want to be a spoiler person. Long story short, this couple had a baby. The baby was born with a severe deformity. And by that, I mean really, really severe. And the parent of this child took the baby out and wanted to just leave it to die. Because in reality, the parent knew this child doesn't stand a chance. It's not modern times. There aren't wheelchairs and all the modern accommodations that we have to provide a quality of life for a severely handicapped child. These parents had to make painful decisions. Sometimes moms, maybe there was no food for the winter. And so they had to choose to leave a baby outside to die. And I don't necessarily think it was all attributed to this death mother energy, like these moms wanted to kill their child. But in our ancestral history, we have to face the very real reality that sometimes babies were left to die because of various different factors. And this is biologically in our bones and in our trauma history. And it's something that's really important to take note of when we're thinking about how we still behave and respond. So the next section she writes, let's return to the three dynamics that form the hub of a trauma world, fear, disconnection, and shame. I'll begin by discussing fear. And here's what she writes about fear. In response to experiencing overwhelming pain and fear, biological changes occur that leave our minds and bodies extremely sensitive to potential danger. This sensitization is a survival strategy that's been shaped by evolution and occurs in many different species. There are costs to having a sensitized fear system, however. We suffer from anxiety, we perceive the world as dangerous, we see threats where perhaps none exist, and we overreact to these imagined threats in ways that create self-fulfilling prophecies. We spend so much energy watching for danger that we have little left over time to invest in play, creative pursuits, and the relationships that would contribute to a sense of well-being. 
Also, the hormonal profile that underlies hypervigilance impacts the immune system and leaves us at risk of suffering from autoimmune and other diseases. As Woodman intuited, our cells are changed indeed. However, if we're living in a dangerous environment, these costs are worth paying because without being alert to danger, we are likely to die young. This is really powerful. And when I look back on it, and I discussed this a bit more at length in episode one, is when I was the most mentally unwell throughout the vast majority of my childhood and then on up into my mid-20s, I suffered from chronic and recurring tonsil infections, which led me to get my tonsils out. I got strep throat as a child, I swear, probably once every three to four months. Maybe that might be exaggerating, but a lot. I had to be on antibiotics for strep throat and different infections as a child very, very often. And as I got older, that turned into chronic and recurring kidney and bladder infections, really bad cases of hives and different types of sensitivity with my skin. I went on birth control at like 14 or 15, well before I was sexually active because I was told by my gynecologist that it would help with acne. And in reality, my skin manifestations and all these different chronic infections, I was on tons of antibiotics, all these different synthetic hormones and no one, not once, knew much about the mind-body connection. What's your environment like at home? What are you going through? That kind of thing. And it really makes you think. And now, when I find myself finally for the first time in my life, the last, I would say, two years where I've gotten my emotions under control, I'm in a very calm, safe environment, healthy uh, relationship now, those chronic infections, those things are nowhere to be found. I haven't been on antibiotics in years now, knock on wood, literally. <laughs> I don't deny that I, I'm sure people get sick. It doesn't mean that every single time you have to go on antibiotics, it can be boiled down to trauma. But it is interesting to look back at your life and see how the mind-body connection plays out in this way. She goes on to say, we are particularly alert to danger around the original traumatizing experiences. At the core of a trauma world is the imperative to avoid re-traumatization. Typically, this imperative is held unconsciously, so we don't know that it's driving us. All the same, it impacts our lives in ways that can cause more pain than the original wounding itself. So what she's saying here is, we are so focused on avoiding all of these bad things happening again. And we, we arrange our entire lives around it. We're looking for danger. We are stuck in paranoid golem energy that we are actually setting ourselves up for more re-traumatization. We're actually more at risk because of this heightened state of fear and hypervigilance than we would be if we just settled into the reality where we're no longer a child, we're safe, we're no longer in harm's way, that kind of thing. So let's continue reading. One of Woodman's insights is that fear of re-traumatization leaves us with a desperate, though often unconscious, need to control other people. To achieve that control... We might use shame, criticism, or violence against them. Alternatively, we might try to manipulate them by assuming the victim role or through trying to please them, people-pleasing. 
and she shares this quote from Marion Woodman. What people call love is often an unconscious and addictive quest for power. How often are we nice to somebody, burying our anger and disappointment and professing our love for them when we are actually trying to ensure that they stay with us because we are terrified of abandonment and loneliness? Paradoxically, an overwhelming desire to please is actually rooted in an addictive quest for control. By pleasing others, we're better able to manipulate them, albeit unconsciously. This is something I've really had to get serious about confronting in my own life is how people pleasing and what a lot of the things that we would say, it's because I love you. It's actually not love at all. It's fear and control and our desperate terror of being abandoned again, masquerading as love. And this is why I think a lot of people who are labeled with things like personality disorders are often seen as trying to get attention or manipulative, when in reality, it's just this unconscious process that's going on in a traumatized person where they're trying so hard to keep people around because they're so scared of being abandoned again. It's not a conscious thing. Just like I described, like parents don't wake up and have a baby and think, yeah, I can't wait to fuck this kid up. Can't wait to make their life miserable. Can't wait to pass on this generational trauma. I love it. Love to do it. I love to see my child suffer. Very few parents are actually like that. It's unconscious. And that's what makes this stuff so insidious and scary. And that's how it keeps on getting passed on. So let's continue. Irrespective of how our fear-driven need for control is manifest, it contaminates our relationships. It also creates new layers of fear because now we're not only frightened of being re-traumatized, we're also frightened of losing control. Sometimes it's impossible to avoid situations that appear similar to the ones that traumatized us. When this happens, our old trauma comes back to life not as a memory of the past, but as a knee-jerk living reaction. I call these trauma reactions. Trauma reactions seem to come out of nowhere because of the way that traumatizing events are recorded in memory. Normally, when we commit an event to memory, a tag is added that notes when and where the event occurred. When these memories are activated, the tag informs us that the experience happened at a particular moment in our past. In contrast, overwhelming, painful, and frightening experiences are committed to memory without this tag. Consequently, when these memories are activated, we're not aware that we're remembering the past. Instead, we are reliving the visceral feelings and reactions of earlier experiences as if they were present reality. This visceral reliving of past experiences is what scientists refer to as implicit memory. To get a sense of how implicit memory works, imagine riding a bike. When we pedal, we don't consciously remember to contract this muscle or lean in that direction. Rather, the original childhood learning, which was written into our brains and bodies, comes alive the instant it's needed. Instant reactions are vital to keep the bicycle upright. These same processes can save our lives, especially if we grew up in a hostile environment. 
However, with trauma, this lightning fast embodied response becomes problematic because trauma reactions can be activated when there is actually no danger present. Worse, because we're unaware that traumatic memories have returned, we're convinced that our feelings represent current reality. And so we behave in ways that recreate the very situation we're desperate to avoid. That's the really sad part about trauma, my friend, because it's, for example, if you are in a store, a department store, which are going away anyways, not the average everyday person that's walking through a fragrance section in the department store, but let's just say that you're walking through the fragrance department in a department store like Macy's or something like that, or Selfridges if you're in London, and you happen past the male cologne section and you smell the same cologne that the man that raped you was wearing, for example. What they're saying here in this description is basically if you smell that, it can take you right back to that moment. Or maybe it's a smell that you weren't even conscious of. You don't have the implicit memory of of the abuse that happened to you, but the smell triggers something in you and it's almost like you're right back in that danger zone. And that's how these things can really hijack us. It's no longer in the past. This tag that she talks about is just a tag of danger, but our bodies don't recognize that we're not actually in that moment. It's just, we forget that and we're right back in that scary, traumatizing place just from smelling that same smell or hearing that same song. So she goes on to talk about different trauma reactions. She writes, trauma reactions are generally built around mammalian responses to danger, freeze, flight, fight, submission, and collapse. The initial response to danger is to freeze, more formally called the startle response. In this state, we can neither move nor speak, but we are hyper alert. Our attention is focused on the threat, our heart rate is high, and our muscles are tense. In short, we are fully prepared for action. If the danger moves closer to us, we generally snap out of the startle response and try to get away. Flight might mean making a run for it, or it might mean sneaking quietly out of the house. If flight is not possible, we sometimes attempt to fight off the danger. However, if we are small and weak, as children are, we will struggle to fight our way to safety. At this point, we are more likely to enter a state of submission. Submission can be effective if the aggressor is a member of our own species. If all else fails, we may collapse and play dead. The state of collapse is very different to freezing. There is a loss of consciousness. We become numbed. Our heart rate drops and muscles go limp. Recently, trauma theorists have focused on the collapse response, and she cites um, something from 2015. This is a dynamic that Marion Woodman intuited from her own experiences and which she helped others recognize. Here's another quote that she cites from Marion Woodman. If, for whatever reason, we were unwanted in the womb, if we were the wrong gender, if we survived an unsuccessful abortion, we carry that knowledge in our cells. We knew that our mother carried the power of life and death over us. We know our cells were not resonating with her. In adulthood, those cell memories cause a body soul to numb out, to become petrified, 
when it suddenly realizes it's no longer pleasing someone and is thus no longer lovable, and therefore it is in danger of annihilation. This is really powerful, and it asks us to acknowledge this connection between child and mother connected by umbilical cord where the nervous system state of the mother has a direct impact on this developing child and how that same nervous system state can really carry on throughout the life of the child and be held within its body. And I think it's important because as Bessel van der Kolk says, the body keeps the score. The body doesn't just keep the score when the body's out of the womb, the body can keep the score in the womb too. And if you think about it from a purely biological perspective, the child wants to survive, right? It's just like a tree. It's going to grow around the obstacle. It might grow into a really warped looking tree and not be growing straight up, but it's fighting for its own survival. And everything in the world is fighting for survival. And so is this baby, right? So if you're sensing that there's a hostile environment, of course, that's going to impact your development and you are going to go into a state of fighting for survival rather than feeling like, ah, it's like all is good. I don't have to fight right now. I can just chill and develop. That's kind of the vibe that we're getting from this quote by Marion Woodman. She goes on to say, Woodman elaborated on this concept later in her work, creating deeply resonant images. So here's another quote from Marion Woodman. I call this possum mentality. Like she's referring to like a possum, like the animal possum. As soon as we sense a whiff of rejection, we're paralyzed with fear. We close down and stay absolutely still in order to survive. Eventually that possum becomes a permanent feature in our body and psyche. Then life is experienced as a minefield in which we're knocked down by explosions that are inaudible to others. If there's an unconscious hostility in the environment, the inner body acting autonomously retreats and falls over dead. Again, really, really interesting and powerful stuff here from Marion Woodman. I find this possum mentality really interesting because she's talking about a possum mentality of our inner life. Even though our bodies can go on growing, everything looks good, we're all fine, we're getting our basic needs met, you can have a possum dropping down freeze response of your inner world and your physical body can go along, you know, as is. And this description that she talks about how life is experienced as a minefield in which we're knocked down by explosions that are inaudible to others. How powerful is that? Like, it reminds me of when we talk about chronic feelings of emptiness. And it's a really powerful way of describing what I call lovingly slash not lovingly the big empty here on the podcast. But her description of life feeling like a minefield where we're constantly dodging explosions that nobody else can hear or see and how isolating that feels, that's a really powerful descriptor and very validating for anybody who grew up experiencing this kind of sneaky, insidious developmental trauma from toxic shame and emotional neglect. So she goes on to write a little bit about change. Another facet of the fear intrinsic to trauma worlds is a fear of change. However tough and painful our lives are, and however much we want things to be different, 
Change means giving up control and going into the unknown. And that is terrifying. Additionally, traumatizing events are often foreshadowed by change. And so we associate change itself with being traumatized. Woodman, whose parents wanted a son and upon her birth were disappointed to find themselves with a daughter, put it this way. Every time I go into the new, I'm overcome with the terror of getting born into a new reality. Being born had taken me into a hostile and dangerous environment, and that seeded a bone-deep ambivalence about change and growth. Woodman used to talk about being dragged towards change as though she were a pig squealing on the way to slaughter. So now she dives a bit deeper into the concept of disconnection. She writes, disconnection, which involves being distanced from aspects of ourselves, is the second system that characterizes a trauma world. Disconnection takes many forms. All provide us with some protection, but all are ultimately harmful because they leave us alienated from our internal reality and from the reality of the external situation. Disconnection first occurs during the original traumatizing experiences. In the heat of a terrible situation, the release of natural opiates blocks the pain and fear coursing through our bodies. This response is adaptive. It allows us to make the most of any opportunity to escape, whereas escape would be impossible if we were incapacitated by pain and fear. After the danger has passed, and if we have enough support, we may be able to reconnect to the overwhelming emotions and process them. However, without support, the unprocessed fear and pain remain locked in our unconscious minds and bodies. We simply could not function if they came into our awareness. Woodman was ahead of her time in recognizing this protective mechanism. Her attempts to escape from her feelings only locked them into the tears which she carried on her hips and thighs. So long as her ego was not strong enough to handle the tension, the pain moved into her body. That gave me goosebumps, that particular phrase. I want to talk about two different examples from my own life that I think demonstrate this pretty well. So the first example is one where I experienced some trauma and I experienced this natural release of opiates that blocked out the pain, but then afterwards I was able to feel the pain, process everything and move forward. But it also impacted my dog. And I'll talk about that. So about a year after I moved back from London, it must have been around 2016-ish, I was working at a startup in Denver and it was a co-working space. And I walked into work at this particular co-working space. People could bring their dogs. You obviously had to have them leashed and they had to be well-trained. And I brought my dog, Cody. She's about like nine pounds, 11, 12 pounds. If she's a little chunky, she's very small. And when I walked in, there was a pit bull with its owner. And by the way, I've only ever had great experiences with pit bulls as being really sweet animals. But this particular dog for no was unleashed. Its owner didn't have it on a leash. And as soon as I walked through the door before I could even think of anything, this dog charges me and Cody, my dog. And I knew when I say that this is this is exactly how our instincts are supposed to play out, I don't even know. I was holding a bag, my coffee, Cody. I dropped everything that I had. I knew instantly I had to go into protective mode and it was so fast. I just knew in my mind that if this dog got its jaws around my dog, Cody could die. 
because one bite from this dog could break her neck or anything like that, or have grave injuries that would cost me thousands of dollars. And so instantly I'm like, fuck no, (laughs) hell no, this is not going on. And so I completely dropped everything. And when I say I kicked this dog's ass, I love dogs, but I knew that I had to protect myself and my dog. And so I kind of like blacked out. I don't really remember what happened, but all I knew is that I was kicking and punching the shit out of this pit bull. And I took Cody, when I say that I, it was tile floor, And I shoved Cody as hard as I could. I let go of her leash and I shoved her across the room and she went sliding all the way to the other other side of the room because I just wanted to get her away from the dog. And then I continued to kick this dog's ass. Um, And thankfully, the the owner got her dog under control. Um, And after that, very flustered because I was already late for work, I like grabbed my stuff walk up to my office where I was. I get Cody, poor Cody. She clearly was so traumatized. Thankfully, she was unharmed. I walk in and all of a sudden, everyone's looking at me and they're like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. What's wrong? And they were like, uh, your leg? And I look down and there's a massive hole in my jeans and my whole leg is just drenched in blood. And I was like, what the fuck? I didn't even feel anything. I didn't feel any pain. I didn't know what, and I still didn't feel anything until much later on in the afternoon. And then it started hurting really bad. And that's the story. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, and thankfully, like everyone gathered around me, like, are you okay? My boss came over and said, go home, change, like, take the day if you need to. Are you all right? Like, they were petting Cody, they were making sure I was okay. And that's an example of, I was able to really process what happened, talk about it. I was able to go and retreat. I had people supporting me. And meanwhile, by the way, Cody, um, bless her, she was really young at this time. She was so social with other dogs. And ever since that happened, Cody is hypervigilant, hyper-traumatized. She's so anxious and very protective of me. And so she can't play with other dogs anymore. And it's something I really would like to do is to be able to have her better socialized But that's an example of something where it was a traumatizing event, but that's an example of how your body can just like shut down. You do what you need to do. I went into fight mode. I completely felt no pain. I just knew instantly it was time to fucking go. And I shoved Cody. When I say kicking this dog's ass, I mean, I just like was punching it and kicking it and trying to get it subdued because it was going wild at us. And think the dog was fine. That pit bull, it's not like I did any damage. It was just, I was literally trying to show it that I will not, you do not dominate me. And it all worked out fine, but I didn't feel the massive gash on my leg. And that's just a really good example of how our body works. Now, conversely, um, the situation where, and I won't go into detail, I've gone into detail on previous episodes, but when I was sexually assaulted, same kind of thing. I really shut down. I don't remember a lot of details of that moment. I knew that there was no point in fighting. And I did an opposite thing where I knew the the person that was assaulting me was much bigger than me. And when I say much, I mean much, much bigger than me. And not only were they bigger than me physically, they were more they were wealthy, they were powerful. And I knew that I just, it was much better for me to just take it and 
I didn't want to face that and I also didn't have anyone that I could talk to about it and I didn't feel that support. And so therefore, just what she's saying where the unprocessed fear and pain then remained locked in my unconscious mind and body and I couldn't function because if that, if I really had to face what happened to me, I would have not been able to function. So it was adaptive for me to lock this away in the short term. But in the long term, it doesn't work out. And I'm going to read this quote again from Marion Woodman after having given you this context because of it's so powerful. She writes, Her attempts to escape from her feelings only locked them into the tears which she carried on her hips and thighs. So long as her ego was not strong enough to handle the tension, the pain moved into her body. And interestingly enough, after that first sexual assault, that is when I really started experiencing a massive explosion of these chronic infections, chronic illness that completely terrorized and destabilized my life for years. And it's a perfect example of this. My ego wasn't strong enough to handle the tension. And so the pain moved into my body to metabolize itself in that way. So she goes on to say, there are many harmful consequences of remaining disconnected from the traumatizing pain and fear we've experienced. First, our desperate compulsion to avoid the unprocessed emotions will poison relationships, reinforce the need for control, and prevent us from saying yes to new opportunities. The avoidance may also leave us trying to sabotage the healing process because healing requires us to reconnect with our buried pain and fear. Second, having locked the overwhelming pain and fear in our bodies, we must subsequently disconnect from our bodies to prevent these feelings from surfacing. This somatic disconnection creates additional layers of suffering. Bodies that are left to carry unprocessed pain and fear can become frozen, collapsed, tensed, or inflamed. We risk being drawn into addictions, both those that take us out of our bodies and those which represent our body's heartfelt attempts to be noticed. Disconnected from our bodies, we lose access, not just to the original pain and fear, but also to emotions more generally, whereupon life feels flattened and dulled. Emotions evolved to guide our responses to the world, and without access to them, the sense of danger that's already part of a trauma world intensifies. Woodman wrote evocatively about this process more than 30 years ago, quote, Good sailors build their ego strong enough to ride with the power of wind and wave, and that ego can only be strong enough if it's supported by the wisdom of the body whose messages are directly in touch with the instincts. More very powerful stuff here that we can unpack. What she's saying is that we need our emotions. We need to be able to ride the wave of our feelings. We need access to them to experience the depth and breadth of life. But traumatized individuals that have shut down and locked this stuff away and become disconnected means that we no longer have healthy access to our emotions. It doesn't feel safe for us to feel our feelings. So we lock them down, shut them down. And so life can look very gray and boring and just dull and flattened, as she said, because 
The opposite of that though just seems too scary because we're scared to touch those feelings because we're scared that it will take us right back there because when we feel them, remember these tags, it makes us feel like it's happening to us again and we want to avoid that at all costs. So she goes on to say, third, in its most extreme form, the drive to separate from the original pain and fear can result in dissociative identity disorder. Jungians sometimes call this state being, quote, identified with a complex. Again, Woodman wrote about it powerfully, quote, if a person has never confronted the childhood betrayal that led to trauma, the process of fragmentation can gain such ascendancy that it becomes autonomous. The individual is unable to understand his or her own behavior, particularly when that behavior repeatedly results in actions that are the opposite of the conscious intent. And so this is the most extreme version. We're talking about disconnection in exiled parts, splitting, suppressing, and at its most extreme, this can lead to what people call dissociative identity disorder, DID, or multiple personality disorder. And that's why knowledge of this at this point, you can see why many people that genuinely struggle with this experience of this extreme dissociation that has caused literal splits where it is almost like a phenomena of having different personalities, different voices, different egos and alters. While that's a very real thing that can happen, it's also very rare. And recently it became almost a trend on TikTok, this social contagion where members of Gen Z and Gen Alpha were saying that they had different personalities and these are their different alters. When in reality, the vast majority of these people are just hopping on the internet hype train. They are not actually experiencing dissociative identity disorder. And it's trends and social contagion situations like this that make it really hard for people that are actually suffering with this phenomena. She goes on to say, underlying the disconnection that has just been discussed is the fear of the unprocessed and overwhelming emotions experienced during the past as part of the original trauma. There's another kind of disconnection too, one that is underlain by the fear of being attacked or abandoned in the present. This fear typically arises when parts of ourselves are unacceptable to our family, teachers, or society. Under these circumstances, we bury the unacceptable parts to protect ourselves from future re-traumatization. The parts that we bury might be so-called negative emotions like pain, fear, or anger, but it can just as easily bury joy, passion, vulnerability, sexuality, intellect, ambition, and creativity. We might also bury our need for love and connection or the need for independence and self-expression. So when we bury different parts of ourselves because we are terrified of being abandoned by the people that we love and need to survive, how we might bury joy is say, for example, you have a chronically depressed parent. You come from home from school, you had a great day and you're like, wow, I had such a great day. Mom, I wrote this song. I did this. And your mom responds with just this very depressed feeling. Oh, that's great, honey. Wow. Well, I'm glad you had a great day because I didn't. Or, or maybe a father responding, you know what? Tone it down. Your mom is really depressed. And so you feel like you need to tone down your joy because your joy is now a threat to the people that you need to survive. 
And so that's how you could end up completely suppressing your joy forever. You might suppress your sexuality. For example, if a young man came out as gay and was sent to conversion therapy or maybe listening to Broadway music in his bedroom and his dad comes in and says, turn that gay shit off, right? These are things where this child, instead of being able to fully express themselves and find joy in the things they genuinely like, they think, oh, I need to just, I'm going to hide my Broadway music stuff. I'm going to do that in the shadows because I do not want to be rejected by the people that I need to survive. And this can play out in so many different ways. With creativity, maybe you are an amazing painter and your parents want you to become a doctor or a lawyer or something that will make you a lot of money or bring your family prestige, but you love to paint and you're painting and painting and maybe you're meeting with um, a guidance counselor when you're about to graduate and you're thinking about what you want to do and you want to be a painter and your parents have constantly brought shame and say, oh, that's cool that you can do that in your spare time, but that's not a career, right? And so all of a sudden you're then suppressing these parts of you, these genuine aspects of you that need to be lived and shown. And you have to shove them into the background because yet again, the people that you deem to be very important for your survival, which they are when you are young and sometimes on until you are into your mid twenties, they are going to reject and abandon the true self. And so therefore you have to mask and suppress She goes on to write, sometimes we try to bury the unacceptable parts by imposing self-control and willpower. Other times, critical inner voices attempt to shame these parts into oblivion. Sometimes the unacceptable parts are locked in our bodies, perhaps through clenching particular muscles by adopting a specific posture or voice. Often this disconnection occurs unconsciously when we are unaware of what we have lost. Sharing one of her own dreams... Woodman writes the following. I go to the attic of my childhood home to find a black box. I put my hand in and I feel the quivering warm body of my pet bird. I cry because I've forgotten him and left him alone to die. I'm afraid of what I might see when I take him out of the box, but I do so. As my tears fall over his tiny skeletal body, he turns into a tiny baby and says, I only wanted to sing my song. How many of us, as tiny vulnerable children, just wanted to sing our song and we weren't allowed to? And so those little parts of ourselves become exiled and repressed and shoved away. She goes on to write, writing on the same theme in a different place, Woodman deepened this dream, quote, Without love, fear of life splits our throat. We cannot sing our own song. Some of us can't even remember we ever had a song to sing to begin with. Being cut off from parts of ourselves contributes to the underlying sense of loneliness that is inherent to trauma. Because we've abandoned aspects of who we are, Disconnection also exacerbates the sense of danger that's built into a trauma world because we're not grounded in the fullness of our own reality. So we're going to leave it there for this episode. And on episode three, we're going to continue our exploration. 
this might be a three or four part series. The next aspect that we'll be covering is what she shares about shame, because I always like to hear a different perspective. In my Toxic Shame series, I explored the work of John Bradshaw, one of my faves. She spends a very brief time exploring shame, and then she moves on to healing trauma. And just spoiler alert, it's complex, it's not instant, and it is a lifelong process, which there is no magical finish line. But through the lens of depth psychology and the work of Marion Woodman, it is a very realistic process of healing. And it'll be really interesting to explore what she shares, especially about how we can include our bodies in this healing process. Because if you're anything like me, probably most of the stuff that you've done so far is reading, swiping through Instagram carousels, listening to podcast episodes, cough, cough, like what you're doing right now. (laughs) And that's good, but we have to get our bodies into the mix too. And that's where I think the magic lies with the work of people like Marion Woodman, who is a pioneer truly in embodied movement combined with the wisdom of depth psychology. And it really is a window into finding that holistic healing that many of us are looking for. Because if you are at a point where you really feel like nothing's working, I just want to experience life as being worth living. I've done all the things, I've read all the books, I bought all the supplements, I'm taking my medications, I'm doing it. Why do I still feel like shit? Why do I still feel so stuck in the big empty? Hopefully, this next episode will start to give us some answers and options. But even through these deep dives like this, knowledge is also power. It's not like there's nothing to be gained from these cerebral, mind-only explorations because I'm sure through today, learning about having these split off exiled parts of our personality, learning about how trauma is triggered, learning about the archetypes of the death mother and the negative mother, about you know fight, flight, freeze, submit, and collapse. All of this stuff, when you learn about it, it's the same reason why my eight-part shame series had such a reaction with my listeners because they realized, oh, this this actually makes sense. Maybe I'm not broken and damaged. They can separate themselves from this shame and realize the generational aspect. And so I'm hoping that all this knowledge will help you realize how biological this is, how all of these things that have given rise to symptoms and maybe disorder and dysfunction in your life, they were once adaptive. They're deeply rooted biologically. Much of it is multi-generational and it's not just you. And there is a way forward. And the biggest thing you can do is become conscious of it. So if anything, after this episode, if you feel more conscious of these things, that's power. That's progress. That is healing. All right, everyone. That's it for our episode today. Next week, we will continue with part three of Trauma Worlds. I can't wait for you to hear it and for us to get into the healing portion. If you loved this episode and you know someone who it might help, the best thing you can do to support my work is really just share it with somebody. I really want to get this information out there. And the most important thing to me is being able to change things to help create and contribute to a generation of cycle breakers and people that are more conscious of these unconscious dynamics 
that are ruling our entire world and contributing to a lot of the imbalance and disorder and dysfunction that we're seeing, not just in individuals who are labeled with these psychiatric disorder and dysfunction labels, but just disorder and dysfunction and repression at large. Because the vast amount of people who are labeled neurotypical are also repressed and maybe just doing a better job at fitting in with society, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not continuing to perpetuate these really harmful cycles. I think I've shared this quote before, but one of my favorite spiritual teachers, Jiddu Krishnamurti, says, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. And I think that says it all right there. So if you would like to unlock full access to ad-free episodes, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content. I'm not kidding you. There is so much bonus content. I have voice notes. I get a lot more personal with my premium subscribers. They get ultra premium submarines, get like three episodes a week, no ads. You're also able to unlock access to the discord community where you can connect with other submarines. It's pretty cool. So if you want to get in on that action, you can go to patreon.com slash back from the borderline. Also, don't forget to follow me on Instagram where I share my manic meme curation. So if you like memes, you can join that. And you can also check out my sponsors, Young Platform and Pure Spectrum CBD, because your support of them also helps me too. And if you can spare a little tiny second out of your day, you could also help me by following, like subscribing to the podcast and rating and reviewing it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps me. It helps other people find my work. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for being here with me. And until next time, remember, anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.